Welcome back, friends, nerds, librarians, and all you ilk. After a bit of time away, it is episode 48 of the SS Librarianship Podcast. We are well rested. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not, that's a lie, but we're definitely well, ready to go. We're over the flu, at least. <laughs> yes. I wouldn't yeah. push it to well rested, I don't think. <laughs> Uh, and we have a great episode for you. It is worth the wait. Uh, Mary Jingaleski, friend, friend of the show, first mm-hmm. mate of the show, just yep. amazing all around, uh, is back on for, I believe we determined it's her fourth appearance. Mm-hmm. And she's talking to us about the Digital Public Library of America. Yeah, the DPLA is a really interesting uh, organization uh, that has been working to provide access to uh, freely and openly available uh, primary source documents. Uh, so, you know, w- images, words, all these kinds of things. They have about 8 million items um, in their aggregate. So it's a, it's a really interesting collection. And, and Mary, Mary is able to provide some really great insight into it. Oh, yeah. And some of the ways that they're striving to make this information not just accessible accessible, but also really relevant and interesting and exciting is just um, fantastic. So uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a really good conversation. Yes. And uh, yeah, then we've got kind of a standard mind grapes for you, a little theater, a little radio, a little TV. Uh, so look forward to that. And I, have, I guess I we guess. should get started. Yeah, let's just get this one started. So <laughs> I'm Allie Sullivan. And will someone please tell Sam what an analogy is? I know what it is. It's like a thought with another thought's hat on. So, Allie, what's on your mind, Grapes? I want to say this week, but really for the last three weeks, because it's been so long since we've done this. Well, you know, life gets in the way sometimes. Um, I'm going to share something that I actually went to quite a while ago. And again, I'm doing some live theater. Mm -hmm. So uh, and it's it was it was pretty funny. It was a really good show. So for um, for our anniversary, uh, our intern, John, uh, got me (laughs) tickets, uh, got me like season tickets to uh, one of the theaters here in Vancouver. So uh, we have tickets to a bunch of plays uh, kind of coming up in the spring, but the one in the fall uh, was a show called Educating Rita. And uh, I've never heard of it. It's uh, yeah, it's I think it's a fairly recent play. I think it's um, I think it's British in origin mm-hmm. and it's kind of another retelling of Pygmalion. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, the kind of premise is, uh, you know, grumpy old English professor who's really dissatisfied with his, you know, whole existence um, ends up starting to teach a a girl who has enrolled in the open college. So there's this program at their university where, you know, they're they're having an open college for students who may not otherwise be able to afford it or may not otherwise be able to attend and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he starts a one-on-one tutoring with this um, with this girl, and she calls herself Rita. And it's one of these like classic tales of you know like she's she's really clever, but you know very uneducated and um, in start it starts out and it, it's it's funny because um, he teaches English literature, right? Mm. And so she comes in with these analyses, and she starts out talking about this book, and oh, I just love this book. And her first essay is just about how great a book is. And he's like, well, this isn't criticism, you know, and he has to teach her, this is what criticism means. And then, you know, I'm going to spoil it. By the end of the play, she's, of <laughs> course, brilliant, right? Uh. And he kind of resents that she has gotten so good. Mm. You know, She was the raw marble, and now she's finished, and she's overshadowing him. 
Yeah, and and it was it was so after the first half of the play, I was I was kind of expecting it to get really bad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I was expecting it to get kind of manic pixie dream girl ish where like, mm. you know, she is going to lift him out of his slump and, and everything. But then the second half, no, she really comes into her own and she's just like, well, you're just mad that I'm no longer espousing your opinions. And, you know, like and she really fights back uh, against his kind of, um, you know, about his, against his his version of what's going on. So. It was really, I was actually quite interesting. Is and, there like a uh, romantic element to it? Um, yes and no. No, because I think like the age difference between the two is supposed to be quite vast. I think the actors that they chose didn't really portray that very well because um, the male actor they chose, I mean, he couldn't have been older than about 50. Mm. And the female actress, I mean, she's supposed to be like 24, and I, she was probably in her 30s. Like, okay. she, but they actually like say her age at one point. And like another thing that kind of ruined that dynamic of it for me was there are some times where the professor guy makes kind of like pervy jokes about how she's so pretty and stuff. Mm. And like, you know, like, oh, if I was a younger man, Rita. And I'm just like, oh, like, that's <laughs> not necessary, yeah. you know. And I think that that would have been like the blow of that would have been softened if they had actually hired an actor who was a lot older, like so much older that it wasn't really, you know. Yeah. The, yeah. The less <laughs> the less viable the past, the less creepy the past. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the fact that the actors were, I, as I conceived closer in age, I was a little bit like, I don't, I don't know about this. But um, I thought it it could have been that. And I think at the end, you know, he kind of, but the thing is too, like, so for half of the play, she's married and he has a long-term live-in girlfriend. Hmm. So like they're both, you know, involved outside of the, outside of this weird education relationship that they have. And, uh, you know, it comes out in the end that like her, her husband really didn't want her to come and be educated and how she's just so frustrated with it. And he eventually burns a bunch of her books, um, so, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. And so she eventually does kind of like, you know, get free of that situation. And um, in the second act, like, does come into her own, which is really, really cool. So, so you might have said this already, but when was it set? That's ambiguous, actually. Huh. It's one of those things where the whole play takes place in his office. It's just in the one room. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I was also going to ask about that. So it's really just the one set. Yeah, there's just one set. Huh. And they mark the passage of time by playing songs and like the the guy who is playing the professor like changes into a different sweater like on stage or like, you know, puts a sweater vest and a jacket on. So like that's how they're marking the passage of time. Mm -hmm. And she always comes in a different like cool outfit. So, so it's yeah, sort of supposed yeah, so to be like evergreen setting wise. I don't know what that is. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's supposed to be sort of, you know, it could be at any time. Like they could put yeah, it on yeah. in 100 years and it wouldn't be dated. Yeah, exactly. Like, and you know, it's it's a musty old English professor's office. Like, you and I have both been in offices with English professors <laughs> in 2005 that were musty and looked like they could have been from 1970 or 1984 or, you know, yeah, it doesn't matter. And they're talking about like old literature. I think the the late like the newest thing they talk about is probably like Yeats or something. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it was it was an interesting play. Um, there were some choices that uh, the, the director made that I didn't really understand. Like, I think the idea was that it was supposed to be taking place in kind of northern England hmm. because um, the professor has like you know a very poshy English accent, 
and Rita has like a total working class northern accent. Like um, she sounded like Daphne from Frasier. Okay, yeah. So, but um, more Manchester than or, London, or maybe yeah. the Ninth Doctor. Well, <laughs> yeah. Lots, lots of uh, <laughs> lots of planets have north. north yeah. <laughs> um, but like you know, but. I think the thing that bugged me about it was is the actress was not necessarily very good at that accent. Mm. So sometimes she came off a little Jamaican. Oh, no. <laughs> you know when that happens? <laughs> oh, God. It's one thing to come off as London when you mean Manchester, and it's another thing to come off as Jamaican. Yeah, it's oh, like, it's like uh, I don't know about this at all. And, and I just found it really distracting. Mm. And I was kind of like, there's no really, like, the play doesn't give a reason why they need to have those accents. Like, I, I think it think could they were sort of putting it on, like they felt that their subject matter would be better served by being British. Well, I think that the play probably calls for the direction of her having a, a Manchester accent, but that doesn't mean you have to do one, you know, because yeah. um, I think like the original play probably did. Um, but uh, it was it was it was an interesting show. And, and I did I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would after the first half. After the first half, I was kind of like, oh, I don't know why this is going like mm. she saves his life or something. I'm going to be so disappointed. But no, it really went the other way. And so by the end of it, like he's just he's getting worse and worse and uh, he eventually just like keeps getting drunker and drunker as the play goes on. There's this like running gag of how he's got uh, bottles of scotch hidden all over his office. <laughs> so like he'll he'll remove books and it's like, you know, inside jokes. If you know literary history about where he's hiding his booze, you know, like he's <laughs> authors who are, you know, booze hounds and stuff like that. So mm. um, so by the end of it, it's like he's being sent on like a teaching, uh, like a guest teaching gig to australia because he's been showing up at lectures drunk and uh <laughs> and he has tenure yeah and he has tenure so <laughs> so um, it sounds like it was really more about her as a character yeah. rather than her as a way to explore his character so that's kind of refreshing yeah, yeah and like that's what that's like after the first half that's what i thought was going to happen and when that didn't happen i was really i was really like pleasantly surprised um but one of the funny things that John said is, you know, him being an English PhD and I have a master's in English. And so both of us are very much mired in sort of the literary criticism world. And watching this play was really weird because it's like this must this must be what doctors feel like when they watch medical dramas <laughs> or like how lawyers feel when they watch courthouse dramas, because it's like. Well, I guess he's like he's like 75% of the way there, but uh, you know. <laughs> so it was just kind of funny. Um yeah, it was a good show. All right. And, cool. Uh, is it still on? Uh I don't think it's on anymore. We uh our tickets are for sort of the end of the run. Mm. Uh, of, of most plays but uh, it, I think it's a rather new play and it seems to be a play that's really easy to put on you know it doesn't require that much uh, set dressing or anything like that and it's um, it's just the two characters uh, so it's a two man show yeah it sounds but, like something you could do in a very small primitive theater yeah so I, I think we will probably be seeing it in some college campuses and, and stuff like that soon um, you know when it kind of leaves the mainstream theater and it, it's a, it was a good show I really enjoyed it but and it was an interesting tale of like kind of retelling of Pygmalion in that you know at the end the the man doesn't doesn't benefit that much from it you know and yeah. it's but the, the the woman really does so it was a good show cool sorry 
Oh, sorry. Speak it isn't up, that John, new. speak it's up. A- <laughs> we can't hear you. <laughs> yeah, I just said it's not that new. Apparently, it was actually first performed in 1980. Oh, so maybe it's enjoying a bit of a revival now. Yeah, I think maybe that's what it is. Awesome. Uh, so, Mary, what about you? Well, uh, this uh, this is basically, since we've talked last, it, it's the new season of TV shows has started. That's right. It and is. You know, there's been a, uh, you guys have covered uh, some of the shows um, that's new on TV and what I've kind of been watching. It's It's been kind of a hit or miss season for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, The Flash is kind of banned in this household currently because um, <laughs> the origin story of Barry Allen wasn't accurate enough <laughs> for other members <laughs> of this household. <laughs> So <laughs> I can totally respect that. I have not I watched too. The Flash, but it looks very Smallville, which is a big turnoff. Well, it, and it's one of those things where I've now also can spot lots of Vancouver, like, filming locations. Right. <laughs> so for me, I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm going to need some time <laughs> before I can watch, like, Vancouver films, uh, uh, shows. Um but for me, uh, a TV show that I found that I re- really uh, was pleasantly surprised by was Jane the Virgin, <laughs> which yeah. it's it's on uh, it's on the name as it uh, the title of the show uh, does suggest a little bit of scandalous uh, goings ons, and um, basically the structure of the show is that it is a telenovela that pokes fun at itself. Yeah, and so it has like a telenovela within it as well, right? Mm-hmm, because yeah. uh, you you've seen it too as well. Right, I saw Sam? the first episode. Yeah, so it basically uh, the first episode I thought was like really well written for a first episode, and it you, lays down the groundwork, which I think will continue um, a lot of the storylines through the rest of the season, mm. which uh, is very promising in my opinion. Um, but Jane the Virgin focuses on uh, Jane. Uh, this uh, woman, Miami, who's trying to get through her um, teaching degree, and she's a religious young Latina woman. And, uh, you know, uh, because of her uh, religious faith, she has saving sex until after marriage. Now, that being said, the drama that starts off this entire series is the fact that Jane is artificially inseminated by mistake. (laughs) And, okay. And who who are we suing about this? Well, that that's one of the plot lines. Whether <laughs> Jane should sue the OBGYN for artificially inseminating Jane instead of giving her a pap smear. Yes. With, with her, just to make it a little more telenovela, it was like, it was her boss's sperm and the OBGYN is her boss's sister. Yes. Who's a lesbian yes. whose partner just cheated on her. And so she was very distracted. Yes, and so it was she was like, so distraught so that she mixed up mixed up the two rooms. I was just like, I was watching this and I was going, this is so telenovela, <laughs> but I love it. No, everyone should sue everyone in this situation. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> and they're like desperately like trying to avoid gold it. mine over here. Uh-huh. Sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's, it's, uh, so anyway, it, and then like, uh, uh, Jane is about, uh, Jane in the course of the first episode, spoilers, uh, gets engaged, or at least the boyfriend wants to propose to her. 
So, uh, or Jane's boyfriend, I should say, not anyone else's boyfriend <laughs> so far. <laughs> you never know. And then like, t- and basically Jane lives with her mother and grandmother and Jane was uh, raised by her mother. Her mother was a single mother and uh, Jane's father comes back into the picture as well. And it's so funny because they, I will say they reveal this in the first uh, first episode. I apologize. I feel so bad giving away spoilers. I, my mother owes me $10 because I called who her father was and she didn't believe me. <laughs> Well, basically, uh, they're uh, the whole the whole family, the grandmother, uh, mother, and Jane, the daughter, watch this telenovela, and they love this telenovela. Well, you know, the central star of this telenovela that they all love is Jane's father. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and then he appears on the. Uh, he wants to be back into Jane's life, and the mother has feelings about that and doesn't want him to be involved, you know, because he abandoned her or, yeah, broke up with her after she said that she was pregnant, yada, yada, yada. Um, the characters are hilarious. Yeah. Uh, everyone has, like, it's really interesting because basically all these characters have these motivations that you're aware of, uh, thanks to the narrator. There's a narrator in this, um, which basically makes uh, Jane the Virgin a mix between like ug- Ugly Betty meets mm-hmm. Pushing Daisies. Yeah. So is, the yeah. similar telenovela sort of sort of um, structure. And then there's a narrator on top of that that reveals all this background information, which increases the drama because if you didn't know this information, it wouldn't be such <gasps> telenovela. <laughs> so... Um, and then like the grandmother speaks only in Spanish. So you have subtitles the entire time. It's really interesting. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm entertained by it because right now it's very dynamic. Now there's always a possibility for all of this to go downhill, but I, you know, I'm pretty optimistic about the show. Yeah. Dynamic is a really good word for it. Like it's, it's visually and structurally really engaging, even if the mm-hmm. actual subject matter is very silly. <laughs> like, yes. yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of like, you kind of get sucked into this sort of mindset of the telenovela when uh, all this could have been solved by a good dose of common sense sort of thing. <laughs> like if people weren't so wishy-washy, this wouldn't be happening. But there's mm-hmm. wishy-washiness about like decisions that are made, you know, so. Um, <laughs> yeah, like when I was watching the pilot, I was sick. It was during mm-hmm. <laughs> the reason why we haven't recorded for a while. And I'm sitting there on the couch and I kind of can't move. So I'm kind of forced to watch the show because my mom is watching it because it's home for Thanksgiving. And I was being very catty about it. And I was like, well, what about like morning after pills and whatever, right? Like I was trying to be very logical about it. But of course, the doctor waits two weeks to tell anybody about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, there's all sorts of things. Sue where it's, everyone. <laughs> And it's and it's just like one of those things of where I guess it's a comedy of errors in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also like additional drama with like uh, the biological father of Jane's baby, the ho- slash her boss and his wife, and then you know mm. there's of course it uh, always affairs going on in telenovelas. Oh, and, then- and also he like this is his last chance to have a kid because he gave that sample before he had cancer. Yeah, like, he had yeah. cancer, I think. <laughs> so much yeah, trauma. so we only had one sample. I'm like, gee, Lance Armstrong <laughs> planned better than that. <laughs> uh, but the uh, what was the, what was the thing that was 
Uh, oh, and then um, the the boyfriend fiance of Jane um, is a detective, okay. and also seems to have some like fishy stuff going on in his past. Maybe. Yeah, I think that was hinted with um, uh, with a party in which we also briefly meet the boyfriend's brother, and the he's not that brother is not welcome in that house. Basically. Hmm. So, like Ugly Betty, is this a English translation or like an English version of an actual Spanish telenovela? Yeah, well, it's actually a loose adaptation of a Venezuelan telenovela. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. I didn't yeah. know that. Because yeah. Ugly Betty was, Ugly Betty's a hugely long running show in Latin America, right? Huh. And then they so. did an American <laughs> version. And the American version lasted for like four seasons. Yeah, yeah. So no, I watched uh, it when it was pretty on. good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that. Show. Um, show. I'm re- I'm trying to rewatch Ugly Betty right now too, um, but I'm still like kind of like in the first season. I'm going, yeah, I remember watching this years ago. You know, mm-hmm. um, so far um, uh, now the family dog is allowed into the TV viewing area. Mm-hmm. So he really doesn't get too concerned when I'm watching TV, except when I'm at high pitched squeaks or <laughs> uh, certain certain uh, actors and episodes. I'm just like, oh, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I never watched that show, but I was always tempted, not necessarily because of the show itself, but because I love Vanessa Williams. <laughs> yeah. You know what? And you know what I found out recently? What was something? Someone spoiled me. Um, or Tumblr spoiled me, I should say. Mm, and boy. I saw a gift set where um, where John Cho is one of the co-workers in Ugly Betty. Mm-hmm. And John Cho is the actor who um, mm-hmm. he played Sulu in the new Star Trek. Uh, he's also was was guest starring in Sleepy Hollow for a little bit. And now he's starring in Selfie with Karen... Uh, oh, that's right. Karen Gillan. Yeah. Karen Gillan. Apparently that show's terrible. It doesn't you know look what? very I, good. It doesn't look very good. Unfortunately, I tend to watch horrible TV shows. <laughs> well, not all not all the time. But I will say, like, I watched, like, the entire two seasons of Stargate Universe. And that was, like, really pushing it. <laughs> like, why I stuck with it, except I was so, like, gung-ho about Stargate. Mm-hmm. At the time, so, um, but yeah, I don't think I don't think selfies gonna last a season, but it does have like interesting. Well, hmm. it's it's interesting <laughs> at times, but it's not enough to for it really to be worth it. Well, mm-hmm. and I mean, you can so only far. go so far with the gimmick of like pulling people in based on who's on your show. Like, I'm sure there's a ton of people who are watching for John Cho and for Karen Gillan, but yeah, it's not necessarily yeah. gonna last, right? Yeah. 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 So exactly. at least it's the structure and the content of um, Jane the Virgin that's like pulling us in. Like I don't think I recognized any of the actors. Yeah, I, I, uh, in a uh, being from a family who loves naming like really obscure like nineteen fifties and sixties and seventies like character actors, <laughs> which which shows they've been in. You know, like I. I'm not very aware. I'm not very aware of this current cast from Jane the Virgin. So I'm looking forward to um, seeing them more on screen. Yeah. And they've all, they're all, yeah, they're all pretty good. They all have very good comedic timing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. You, you need your actors to be on point if you're going to be <laughs> mocking the format in which you are telling your story, right? Yeah, there was, and there was some other tongue-in-cheeks. I think the narrator tends to, like, mention ch- some tongue-in-cheek stuff about telenovelas or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, in addition to situational comedy uh, within that. So. Yeah. yeah, so I, I recommend Jane, uh, Jane the Virgin. Yeah, it's a lot uh, of fun. If you need a yeah. palate cleanser from the like really dark stuff that's on TV this season, you know, if you're watching Gotham or How to Get Away with Murder or whatever, this is very yeah, much I mean, the opposite. <laughs> happy after those those things. I I personally like to watch Shane the Virgin after I've watched Sleepy Hollow, which I enjoyed <laughs> the last time I thought I was on or like, one of the times I was on the show. Yeah, or on SS Librarianship. Um, now it's just like the uh your uh, sense of disbelief or suspension of disbelief, I should say mm-hmm. uh, for sleepy hollow. Like, I'm just like, I'm just going to roll with it. <laughs> just going to roll with it because, you know, we're not even based in reality anymore, but okay. We'll see how these two work out. So uh, for sleepy hollow, I should say. Uh, so <laughs> that sleepy hollow is the closest thing that I will get to watching a thriller TV show because mm. I just don't do well. I can't watch the walking dead. Mm-hmm. You know, with the zombies, because they basically film in, like, places that I grew up. So it's, like, twice. <laughs> like, I don't do zombie movies on principle. Like, this with the um, Walking Dead filming in places I grew up in. I'm just like, nope, nope, can't handle it. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. So, what about you, Sam? What have you been up to? Um, I have been, actually in like I don't know if it was like deliberate TV detox but a little bit of TV detox I haven't been watching a ton of TV I've been listening to a lot of stuff Um, maybe it's just all the like screen headaches that come with recovering from the flu but Mm -hmm. uh, I've been finding myself sitting in the evenings and like listening to things um, rather than watching and I've been catching up on the current I guess the current season or the current run of uh, Writers and Company which is a CBC radio show Mm-hmm. That actually, and I didn't realize this, has been running for a long time. At 24 hmm. years, uh, ah. it's been on in some form. And so it's hosted by Eleanor Wachtel, who is a journalist and writer and very connected in the literary world after doing this for 24 years. And it's just her each week in conversation with a writer. And she's amazing at doing this. She has this great, really calm very literary voice. (laughs) She has this huge trove of knowledge about the literary world, about literature. She can make these connections while she's talking to these people. Mm -hmm. Um, And she asks very interesting questions. And even if there's sort of a, a bit of a challenge to what the writer is espousing or saying, she'll ask them anyway. Like she's not, she's not afraid to do that, Mm -hmm. uh, which is very cool. So I've been on a little bit of a kick of listening to her interview, female authors, um, which actually started with a male author. So A show like Writers and Company, you kind of need to find a way in if you're not a huge literary nerd, um, because she interviews a lot of people you've probably never heard of if you're not very connected to that world. So my way in was she recently talked to Martin Amos, who wrote um, Time's Arrow, which I have never successfully gotten through, but I know about. <laughs> and so it was a way to be like, oh, okay, I've kind of heard of this guy. Let's see what he has to say. And then from there, uh, she actually, his stepmother, Elizabeth Jane Howard, who is also a writer, uh, passed away recently. 
And so she replayed an interview with Elizabeth Jane Howard. And her interview was so much about growing up during and after um, World War Two, and growing up with a mother who was very hard on her in various ways. And it was really a very it was a story about her as a developing writer, but also as a woman. And she recently wrote a memoir uh, about all of this. It's called Slipstream. Um, if anyone wants to check it out, it's, it sounds fascinating. But hmm. listening to her talk about her experiences as a woman growing up with a mother who didn't really want to be a mother, I decided to sort of, you know, follow that thread and start listening to more interviews with female authors. Mm-hmm. And they're all the, the last few I've listened to have been so different from each other and so interesting. Um, she recently interviewed Ali Smith, who's a Scottish writer, uh, who recently wrote a book called How to Be Both, in which she superimposes the story of a Renaissance painter who may or may not have been a woman with the story of like a modern day teenager growing up in Cambridge and discovering art, hmm. which again, hmm. sounds amazing. So I haven't read any of these, but instead I've, I've listened to the authors talk about them. I almost feel like I've read parts of them. <laughs> um, and yeah, Ali Smith is a really interesting person. Um, she was so, it's really interesting when you listen to an interview where the interviewer and the interviewee are so different in tone. Mm-hmm. Um, Wachtel is so calm and, and making all these, you know, sophisticated connections and whatever. And Allie Smith, also very intelligent, but very, like, almost manic in the way she mm-hmm. gets into describing these things that she's into. And she hops from Renaissance art to gender politics to classic Greek actresses. And <laughs> you sort of pick up all these little tidbits as you're going along. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she chooses her subjects well. They're all very interesting people. Um, the last one I listened to was... Um, Jessmine Ward, who I had never heard about, but apparently has been a very successful writer in the last decade or so. Um, and she lived through Hurricane Katrina mm-hmm. uh, with her family, who, who are mm-hmm. a poor African-American family who live uh, in the area that was hit. And um, she recently wrote a memoir, not just about Hurricane Katrina, but also, and unfortunately, it's a very timely subject, also about um, the five all African-American, all young men in her life, including her brother, who have all died in various ways, mostly very violent, Mm -hmm. over the past decade. Uh, And so there's a bit of a sort of commentary on the South and and how Black men are still treated. Um, And it's called Men We Reaped. So these are all books that I really want to check out now. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Because of, yeah, of Wachtel's sort of talent in, in really pulling out the essence of these authors in these interviews. And so can people get that from the CBC website? Yes, yeah. So it's uh, available in podcast form. That's how I've been kind of skipping backwards following this trail of women. Um, I don't think, I'm on the website right now, I don't think you can get them all. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I don't think you can go back 24 years. But uh, I think most of the current season should be available. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to learn how to interview, and we at SS Librarianship are always striving to improve our interview style, right? I feel like <laughs> I feel like I want to start repeating people's full names very quietly and calmly to them <laughs> as I ask them a question, which is sort of a sign- <laughs> signature of Eleanor Wachtel. Um, but yeah, she'll ask these really piercing questions. Like Amos, uh, when she spoke to him, he has recently written a book, and I can't remember the title right now, about um, 
about the Nazi concentration camps in World War II, and he actually has written it mostly from the perspective of German officers, mm-hmm. um, some of whom are into their work, some of whom are not. <laughs> um, and he's done it in almost sort of a very dark comic style. He read part of it on the podcast, and in a way it was very funny, although it was very disturbing as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he started to talk about you know, class structures and, and whatever. And he started to talk about um, anti-intellectualism in England. And he seemed to be saying that it, that people in England are much more anti-intellectual than, than say, people in the U.S. And I, listening to this, was like, what? And, um, and, and Wachtel, to my delight, I did not expect her to, said, are you sure that you don't think that there's also a you know, a thread of anti-intellectualism mm-hmm. going on in the U.S. recently. And, and they sort of started to talk about that a bit. And, and yeah, she wasn't afraid to challenge him. Yeah, Respectfully, nice. of course. But yeah. Huh. Yeah, I would highly, cool. highly recommend checking it out. It's, um, it's obviously, you know, very professionally produced. And she has a lot of resources behind her because she is part of the CBC. And that's a big reason why. But it's really, um, it's really quite a simple just sort of her in conversation with someone interesting every week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and even if you've never heard of the author you'll get something out of it. Mm-hmm. I um, I often find when I'm listening to other types of podcasts, Nerdist or WTF or whatever, that I'll pick and choose based on whether I know who the person is that they're talking to. Yeah, so, I have so. a tendency to do that as well because there's just so many. Yeah. Like, like Nerdist is releasing three a week now. Like, that's a little ridiculous. Oh, my God. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, aside from Martin Amos, I had never heard of any of these people and I have been really very much enjoying listening to them talk so and they're focused on canadian uh authors correct since it's cbc no actually oh. um, that's a really good question but it's very international uh <clears throat> there are a couple of recent episodes um kamala shamsi is one of them and i'm scrolling back here kushwant singh was the other one uh both people who have had experience experiences and have written about um, the partition of India and Pakistan mm-hmm. and uh, she talked to Ian McEwen recently. So yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. actually very international in scope. Uh, there are several Latin American authors that I had sort of heard of, but never really heard much, you know, in detail who I've learned lots about by listening to this show. So yeah, definitely not just focused on Canada. How long are her segments? Uh, they're usually about an hour pretty standard okay. like radio yeah. slash podcast episode length cool yeah and enough to get into some details right and For also sure. the authors will usually read a passage so you can sort of decide from that whether you want to uh, follow up and do some reading mm-hmm. if your stack of books to read isn't big enough <laughs> <laughs> oh librarians just love to enable yeah <laughs> Well, that's pretty good. So we've got a little bit of TV, a little bit of theater, and some radio. So it's pretty well-rounded mind grapes, I would mm-hmm. say. As you're staying inside, as the winter gets colder, you'll have lots to check out. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so this week on, I feel like it might be a Class Z. It might mm-hmm. be a Where Do We Put This? Where Classy. Do We Class Z? <laughs> <laughs> um, at any rate, we have... With us once again, the lovely Mary Jingaleski, who is here to talk to us about the Digital Public Library of America, uh, which she has been sort of getting more involved with lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I currently serve as uh, the uh, a DPLA community rep. All right. So what does that entail? 
I mean, I guess maybe coming to talk to us is part of it, right? Yeah, coming to talk to us, uh, basically uh, getting individuals and communities connected with the resources that DPLA provides, and also um, uh, basically promoting a public option for access uh, hmm. to the materials that the uh, DPLA currently hosts. So, tell, so us, it's, tell us a bit about sort of what DPLA is before we get into into what it provides. Okay, so DPLA is the Digital Public Library of America, mm-hmm. and it's described as like an online digital library. It has like over 8 million items with like uh, full books, uh, audiovisual materials and photographs in addition to other materials uh, that are online. And DPLA basically acts as a portal for mm-hmm. you to be able to search for these resources uh, DPLA currently um, uh, provides this content through partners uh, and through service hubs and content hubs. So uh, there's organizations such as the New York Public Library, uh, the Smithsonian Institution, the Digital Library of Georgia, um, Art Store, uh, and other institutions uh, that basically provide an opportunity for the public to be able to find these resources that have been digitized and may not always be able to be readily accessible. So So, it's not necessarily hosting all of these materials, but it's sort of aggregating them? Correct. It's basically a metadata portal. Hmm. So uh, you're able to search for something like cats, and then the results will come up from a variety of institutions. And if you click on the item uh, to see uh, like a photograph for, uh, in more detail, you have to usually click it again at this point in time in order to be rerouted to uh, whatever the hosting institution's uh, pages. Okay. And so. is it aiming to make sure that you have uh, free and equitable access to these things? So not things that are behind paywalls or um, you know require some sort of registration? Correct. Correct. So this is, again, public option, not hidden behind a paywall. Um, there is a um, small amount of material that is Creative Commons. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, you're able to basically share, remix, um, manipulate these items without having uh, further permission required from the creator. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also copyrighted um, items. There's a whole bunch of um, orphan works and unrestricted items that are mm. still kind of in a gray area. Um, so it's a great opportunity to explore. I know I was exploring um, and I found a photo uh, from my hometown in which it's my, uh, <laughs> it's going to sound very hometown nerdy of me, but <laughs> it's, it's basically from like the downtown of uh, the downtown of my small hometown, and it's a picture of my sci- middle school science teacher's house that he used to own, huh. and and it's like across the street from like my high school uh, librarian mentor's dad's house, sort of thing. You know, like it. It's it's and what I found out was that this uh, through this the notes on this photograph from the Digital Library of Georgia. The description is such that it's apparently one of the oldest homes 
in the area. It's actually was built in 1835 and survived like Sherman's March to the Sea in which he like raised everything in Georgia as wow. Matt Ruin likes to point out. <laughs> so uh, so it's just, uh, it's very interesting. I knew it was, a, that it was an old neighborhood, but I didn't realize that particular house was uh, as old as it was. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, give it an, uh, give it another 20 years and it's going to be 200, uh, no, yeah, 200 years old. <laughs> so that's pretty impressive. Wow. Um, but DPLA, you know, like acts as a portal where you're able to explore all of these primary materials, uh, and content, but it also acts as a platform for technology to be developed. So you're, um, one of the things that I really think is amazing is their app library. They have a application programming interface, an API, mm-hmm. and additional open data that you, that you can use, you know, you can, other software developers and researchers and such, you can use the API and such to create apps huh. uh, while using DPLA's content. So I'm okay. So this is, there's a lot of, uh, other uses, but this might appeal, uh, to our crowd in which (laughs) there's actually a, a historical cats app. Oh, really? Okay. (laughs) In which there's a Twitter bot that grabs an item at random, um, via the TPLA's API platform and tweets Mm -hmm. it out. So this, this is something that's available. You know, you could be historical dogs, you know, this is, this is all open uh, open source and opportunities for you to um, really learn more about DPLA. You know, it's it's a way of public engagement in sort of like this uh, in more of a non-traditional way, in a newer way. So rather and, than just um, providing access to these things, they want to give people the opportunity to actually use them in a way that appeals to them. Correct. So, so use it's like, and redistribute. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they want you to be building apps. They want you to have data reuse. They want. Uh, there's several international collaborative projects, you know, that are either in progress or um, currently ongoing. Um, I'll do my plug in a second about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's not just about use of content. Sure, DPLA is a really great opportunity to have like primary resources for the classroom. You know, there's books, there's photographs, there's all sorts of opportunities to uh, create, like, exhibitions, which DPLA does host. They host Mm -hmm. digital exhibitions based on items within their collections. Uh, And there's also, like, an opportunity to do, like, family history research. You know, there's e-books on there uh, uh, that you can peruse for free. Um, you can go through the exhibitions. There's oral histories, some oral histories on there. They're working on expanding the audiovisual material, uh, at this time, but you know, it's, it's a small fraction at this point, but it's an option, you know, an area for future growth. It sounds like they're, yeah, they're sort of stepping beyond mostly when libraries create digital collections like this, the focus is on providing an avenue for researchers to find materials, you know, maybe providing some genealogy information, but it sounds like they're trying to step beyond that to make it as, as relevant as it can be by allowing other people to make it relevant to themselves. That's mm-hmm. yeah. And they're really trying to like standardize things. So like have a, have the metadata a little bit more standardized. Oh, would uh, that be nice? The, yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> 
so that'd be nice, you know, just in general, uh, they have, do have metadata standards that are in place, uh, and they're working on expanding, uh, service right now. They have like 12 service hubs in which, you know, there's hubs that, uh, serve regional, uh, or sorry, that serve states and regions in which they, uh, multiple institutions can channel their, uh, resources and content. And uh, the goal is to, you know, get cert, uh, more service hubs in the remaining 34 states in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so to get more uh, diverse content. So, so where does the funding for DPLA come from? Uh, DPLA funding comes from uh, primarily grants. Okay. Uh, there's also a very generous anonymous benefactor uh, mm-hmm. who's been very generous to DPLA, I'm told. And... Uh, primarily it's grants. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's, uh, the opportunity and also there's partners in this, right? Some Smithsonian institutions, you know, a Smithsonian institution, New York public library, all these institutions who have been generous enough to share their content through partnership with DPLA that, you know, they had to invest time and money into, uh, digitizing this content and organizing this content. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, one thing that I think would be of interest is some of, um, sort of like the re- sort of the future goals of the organization. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they yeah. actually, uh, there's actually a visualization, um, by Dean Farrell, which shows, I believe it's Dean Farrell, but base, uh, I, I might be incorrect. There is an app on the uh, DPLA website for DPLA licenses because, mm-hmm. you know, this content, all this content have different rights statements. Yeah. Right. In terms of like, not, it's not just Creative Commons, it's copyright, it's unrestricted, it's orphan works. Like, how does this work out? Well, they did a survey and there's 26,000 different rights statements. Oh my gosh. For all of these, for this <laughs> In- eight, like eight plus million items. Probably from all kinds of different standards, right? Yes, yes. So what they're hoping for is to create a streamlined set of rights with uh, 20 categories, you know, like creating a range, but something that's very clear. So I'm really excited about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then uh, they want to expand multimedia content. They're not quite sure about books and e-books. That's an area of intensive study. Uh, and books and ebooks are so complicated right now. It's just, yeah, <laughs> yeah. To say you can't, you can't, apparently, you can't just give people epubs. That's not something that we can do. <laughs> They've got to so, be filtered through Adobe, which is, as we've all come to know it, evil. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Yep. But we don't have to talk about that today. So, Mary, <laughs> I'm curious about the actual staffing. I mean, obviously because you're aggregating and not necessarily maintaining your own collections, there's probably not a ton of staff, but are the staff primarily librarians or technologists or? Um, It's a small group. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, uh, I believe they're getting library folks kind of on board Um, within the actual DPLA staff. They're based in Boston, I believe. Hmm. The head is Dan Cohen. Dan is a uh, known for being a digital humanities uh, figure mm-hmm. within the community, a uh, very strong figure, well-known figure. Um, so much so when I was when I had my housemate, uh, or when I was 
when I had a housemate and we were, um, I was applying to become a DPLA community representative, I was looking forward to, you know, like when Dan Cohen would tweet, tweet at me so that I could be like, <laughs> hey, housemate, you're a digital humanitist or humanitist. Ah, you are a digital <laughs> humanities person. Dan Cohen just tweeted me, you know, like, do I have celebrity status yet? In this <laughs> oh, so, yeah. So basically, um, well, there is. Dan Cohen, who's a uh, who's in digital humanities, and then there's also like Kenny and Frankie, who I know uh, from through my involvement they with DPLA. They help manage with the community reps mm-hmm. program, and community reps are basically um, volunteers who promote DPLA to their various communities, mm-hmm. uh, and again promote open access, as I mentioned before. <laughs> But uh, they have librarians on in terms of uh, working with the metadata, organizing that metadata, you know, getting the technology up to speed. And uh, it's, a, it's really exciting in terms of um, what they're going to be accomplishing in the future. At least that's my point of view, you know, what I'm anticipating. Mm-hmm. Um, the technology aspect of... Uh, DPLA, DPLA has a lot of um, opportunity because their, their platform that they have is basically an open source metadata platform. Mm-hmm. So it's open source, which means other institutions can use uh, the code that DPLA has developed as a metadata platform to use for them, their own. Hmm. Within so reason, it- you know, open source, you have to at least give credit. But yeah, yeah. Um, but it could be something like. Canada could start a digital public library of Canada mm-hmm. sort of thing working with DPLA. I know that uh, working as a community rep, uh, DPLA community rep in Canada, that was like one of the first questions that like Canadian librarians were asking me was like, so when are we going to get a service hub in Canada? It's <laughs> like, I think they're just focused on the 50 states but yeah, the, the, the DPLNA would make a lot of sense. There's so much cultural overlap between our two countries. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of opportunity there. And uh, they have like the, uh, there's, DPLA has the open source metadata platform. They have the front end portal, which is very shiny. If you would like to go to dp.la, uh, <laughs> that will direct you to the webpage, believe it or not. Uh, and then, it, you know, the front-end portal, and then it has the API as well. So you can mess around with the API and see what you can do with it. And it really sounds like, yeah, making it all open source is not only a great service, but it's probably also going to encourage other institutions as they start doing this to be in line with the metadata standards, which mm-hmm. <laughs> which is always nice. So what so, mm-hmm. what appealed to you, Mary, about like being a community rep? Like, why was that a thing that you decided to pursue? I wanted to pursue being involved with DPLA because um, at the time of their launch in April 2013, I was hearing some really exciting stuff about it. And the fact that I was, uh, that my home state of Georgia was so heavily involved in the beginning uh, was really promising because, you know, from my home, I can search all this stuff about like all these towns that I've traveled through and grown up with, you know, learning all sorts of things. Like how my hometown had a militia in the 1920s or something like that. I don't know. Like that is an example of like things <laughs> you're learning about your hometown that people don't necessarily talk about. So um, 
but it's one of those things where I really liked DPLA's mission of having the public option for access. Because I, in general, I tend to, I tend to be all about, you know, like open source, open data, open mm-hmm. access. And I felt it was really important that uh, the public should have access to these materials when so often and digitization projects, sometimes a lot of the stuff gets slapped behind it, uh, stopped, or like pay- have restricted access yeah. behind the pay- paywall. Yeah. So um, I thought it was really important that these materials, you know, are from public institutions and such. They should remain public. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, the fact that they were dealing with a lot of metadata and they were developing their API and everything. I was like, this is a great opportunity to do some fun stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, just, you know, like getting people involved, even with history, right? Yeah, I'm learning so much just on my own about, you know, local areas uh, in relation to me. Imagine what it could be within the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's classroom. It's from, like, kindergarten through university that could use these resources. It's not, it's not age-restrictive. It could be beyond university, you know, yeah, yeah, librarians and researchers and such. So I think um, one of the things I really like about it is that, um, you know, it's it's the Digital Public Library of America. But like as an aggregator, it is pointing out these areas where you do have access to other things, uh, where you are getting access to the materials themselves. And it's kind of bringing the library back into that equation because, um, uh, you know, lo- local libraries, public libraries, that kind of thing. Because I, one of the things that I've been noticing a lot of while I've been um, working is that so many of the things that we provide access to um, these days kind of erase the library from the equation. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So like if we're providing access to a service, um, oftentimes that service will require you to have an external login and that external login will then be authenticated through the library. But you don't have to go to the library's pages anymore to get access to that stuff. So, um, you know, making sure that there's this the Digital Public Library of America is making sure to point back to the sources where it comes from to say this came from a library. I, I think that that's really cool and that's really important. Yeah, it's sort of feeding off of those of those projects, but also celebrating the fact that there are all these local projects going on everywhere to create these digital collections, right? And yeah, and and to yeah. to provide that value that value service for the community and for for the internet community by saying, you know, the libraries aren't just these dusty old repositories; they are doing something, and they are doing something relevant in today's you know increasingly digital world. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it, I think it's a really cool do a uh, thing. <laughs> yeah, and it's really multidisciplinary too. On yeah. top of that. Yeah. Because I mean, like you may not realize it, but you know, the US government printing office is involved with this. The Internet <laughs> Archive is involved with this with DPLA. They are a, a part of the content hubs uh with this organization, in addition to different uh universities as well. It sounds like they've been so. doing really well at developing these partnerships. Like they they must have a very charismatic team in Boston getting all I these different organizations so. on board. I it's think fantastic. so. They, uh, I've enjoyed interacting with them. And there's, <laughs> it's just one of those things where this has so much potential. I really can see this growing and doing all sorts of stuff. You know, I'm always interested in, thing, in new and ongoing things. So my attention is definitely, definitely uh, 
caught. Have you thought about building your own app? Using I have some of this content? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have thought about it. Uh, my, uh, for me, I really would like to do a hackathon. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I'm kind of toying with the idea of maybe coming back up to Vancouver, Yay. maybe in the spring. This oh, is like a, my pipe dream right now, but uh, uh, coming coming up to Vancouver and maybe doing a hackathon for DPLA because we have a wonderful technology and uh, librarian communities uh, up in Vancouver, yeah, Canada. We would be uh, on board. We do not have your technological skill, but we would still be on board. You know what? You know, in doing a hackathon, Sam, it's one of those things where if you structure it right, anyone can participate in a hackathon. You hmm. don't necessarily have to have technical skills. And yeah, is- uh, so often when I like talk to developers and such, they're like, Oh, you're a librarian. Oh, you know, metadata, you know? (laughs) So at least that's the impression. So. And then you say meta what? (laughs) (laughs) No, no one can say that anymore. Post Snowden. Everyone knows what it is. (laughs) This is just so like, I, I can't get over the exciting sort of app part of it because I really Mm -hmm. feel like, I don't know. Access is one piece of this. And then the other piece is, is knowledge is public knowledge that this stuff is available and relevant. Right. And Mm -hmm. I feel like so often we develop these collections and we curate them so well and we make them so useful. And then the piece where we let people know about it kind of gets dropped a little or we Mm -hmm. make it relevant to people. And this is just, yeah, I love the idea of, um, of people being able to, I don't know. So many people are so interested in like, I want to develop an app, right? I want to get involved in this, mm-hmm. in this app game, in this website game, whatever. But the content isn't necessarily there. So much of the content, as you're saying, is, is locked up. That becomes mm-hmm. a whole other obstacle. And this is just this wealth of content that you can do anything you want with. It's very exciting. Within, well, the, of, within, its, within the realms of the licensing agreements. Well, yeah. a lot of these licenses are pretty <laughs> open, though. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, there's a lot of content, right? Eight million items. Mm -hmm. So eight million plus items. Uh, One of the things, speaking of local, uh, local DPLA um, involvement in Vancouver, Canada, Skylar Lindbergh actually has an app for a DPLA visual search prototype. That's awesome. Skylar Skylar went to uh, library school with us. I knew him when he was in library school, I think. Because of our years, I know him, but you guys might not necessarily know him. I know him. Oh, I know him. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, I know it's a small world in Vancouver, but uh, at least the library world. But yeah, so that's that's an opportunity. But you know, you don't, as I said before, you don't have to um, know how to program to get involved with DPLA. You know, you can just use the content. And a really great opportunity to get involved is. Uh, the DPLA and digital uh, NZ uh, Gif It Up international mm-hmm. gift making competition that's currently going on. Oh, cool. <laughs> that's awesome. So I know this is this episode is going out on October 27th, mm-hmm. but this is an ongoing contest from October 13th to December 1st of 2014. So, so even if you're listening to this in a few weeks, you're still good to There's go. There's still a month to create your own uh, 
gifts you reusing public domain and openly licensed digital video images text etc uh that's available through uh digital nz which i'm not sure if it's digital new zealand because it is new zealand organization hmm. um but it's dpla and digital nz so uh and the winners will have their work featured and celebrated online in the public domain review and the smithsonian.com oh wow website it's exciting yeah it is (laughs) so it basically they have six categories uh animals planes trains and other transport nature and the environment uh your hometown state or province uh, World War I from 1914 to 1918, and then a GIF using a stereoscopic uh, image. Hmm. So there's like different different categories that you can compete in, and uh, you can basically go to dpl, dp.la slash info slash GIF dash it dash up well, of course we'll have links on the yeah I'll absolutely put, we'll yeah. put links in the show website right now but yeah and um trying to think so far there's like a there's people who have been submitting things uh really fantastic gifts uh uh that i think will definitely find its way into tumblr oh wow yes, yeah i'm so. looking at some of them now there's a dog on a typewriter <laughs> and there's some different sort of snowflakes morphing into each other Mm-hmm. Someone's taken an old poster of a a bomber from I don't know, looks like maybe World War Two, and it's dropping fruit in the gift. <laughs> <laughs> we will definitely link to this. This looks super. Yeah, fun. and there's uh, there's another uh, there's another resource uh, that all that will be on the show notes um, by the Smithsonian uh, Institution Libraries. They first mm-hmm. started doing like the gifts of historical material on Tumblr, um, and they have like a how-to um, instructional sort of post oh, that's uh, that I think would be of interest to y'all. So I, apparently, that inspired one of the uh, submitters of this Gif It Up contest. Um, so yeah, awesome. so it's kind of exciting. Kind of, we're we're trying to do newer ways of public engagement. I think they're doing a pretty good job. That's fantastic. That sounds awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about DPLA, Mary. I think it's something that's it's really right up our alley here at the SS Librarianship. Yeah, I, mean, oh, I yes. sort of knew about it, but I had no idea that it was yeah such a, a vibrant collection of initiatives. So I'm excited to explore these some more. Oh, please do. I'm so glad to be able to spread. I'm doing my job. Yay. <laughs> so, uh, and thank you guys so much for having me on. Oh, it's this always, is what always my... a pleasure to talk to you. I want to say four. It, this, yeah, this is number four. Thanks to your brand new archives page. Uh, That's right. You can everything search being for your so name. wonderfully tagged. I can for Metadata. This is going to be yeah. my fourth episode. I, you know what? I feel like I'm tied with Melanie. Yeah, I'm tied with Melanie, and I definitely need to, like, somehow beat John, who's apparently <laughs> at least on there five times. I'm not sure if you're going to give him credit this episode, too, since you could hear him briefly. <laughs> Man, John, All you've got to do as, is come as, home as... to Vancouver and marry one of us, Mary. It's not that complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so... 
So, uh, but thank you for having me on, and I look forward to having something interesting to tell you guys in the future. Thank nice. you. We look forward to it too. Yeah. I love Mary. It's always so nice to talk to her. We don't get to talk to her that often anymore. So, mm-hmm. I miss yeah. Her. And she's always got such interesting things to talk about. Like, I mean, we're here in Vancouver, still sort of pretty keyed into the librarian community that Mary is also part of. Mm-hmm. But she told me like four things before we started recording that I did not know about. About <laughs> people getting new jobs and new programs starting. And yeah, for sure. John Gomeshi getting fired for some reason. <laughs> oh, I told you about that one. Okay. Fair <laughs> um, but yeah, that was fantastic. It's such an interesting project. I really want to delve into those apps yeah I found sure. Tyler's app and started poking around at it after we recorded so well we'll have to, to uh, put more. that in the show notes for sure definitely yeah uh so what's been going on in social media since um on our little yeah so we're doing really well on twitter we're like just shy of 700 followers on twitter which is really exciting Yay. super exciting um i think that we should try to get a thousand by 2015 i think we can do it i think we can um, do it too so and, everybody and also, share us with your friends and we can get there we can do this together <laughs> and uh, and yeah i mean you can always share your favorite episode there's um individual share links on all of the pages for the individual episodes on our website so you can do mm-hmm. that as well uh and welcome aboard to everyone who started following i'm noticing we're getting added to a few like librarianship lists on twitter yeah. so that's very cool that's very cool i've never used the list feature much but i see a lot of people seem to find it useful so it's yeah very cool. for sure definitely um yeah so that's what's going on on uh twitter we've also recently uh redone a bit of our website mary mentioned it at the end of our talk but we do have an archive up now so um if you're sharing the show with people which you definitely definitely should be um we can you can share episodes and you can even send them to our back catalog and uh uh, you can listen to your old favorites if there's one that you remember we talked about something we do have some good metadata and tags up there so uh you can probably find what you were looking for <laughs> mm-hmm. and as mary mentioned her tag is uh, is getting bigger and bigger yeah <laughs> <laughs> she uh, she appears on more and more mm-hmm. uh yeah so um, same kind of situation on tumblr we are climbing steadily we're at about 480 and uh other tumblrian news um i and uh, another tumblrian intelligible dirigible are organizing the first at least first to our knowledge um tumblrian film festival so uh, if you want to find out more about that, I'll put a link to the doodle in the show notes. There's still time to join. And basically, we're going to watch Empire Records and blog about it. And it's going to be super fun. Sounds good to me. <laughs> I love that movie. Uh, other things coming up. Um, um, we had a bit of a Twitter conversation about this Michael Vaughn event that's happening. Yep. So Michael Vaughn is a um, is is a, a lawyer here in Vancouver who works with the... Um, Oh, what is it called? BC Civil Liberties Association? That's what it is. Yeah. And um, she's very involved in the sort of librarian community here. She gave an amazing talk at last year's BCLA that I didn't go to. And I was stuck in a really lame seminar. So uh, (laughs) I was watching the Twitter feed for hers and being like, oh, I made the wrong choice. (laughs) Wrong choice, Sullivan. So, um, so yeah, so she'll be giving a talk at the end of November. So we're, uh, if you're in Vancouver, you can definitely sign up through the BCLA website and go and see that talk. It's going to be really cool, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. And we will definitely talk more about it on the show. And I guess the last thing we have to tease is um, we had an extremely unique opportunity this week. Um, Vancouver Public Library offered us this 
incredible um, opportunity to talk to Cory Doctorow. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pretty fantastic. So he's in town for the Vancouver International Writers and Readers Festival. And he had a bit of time free in the morning. So originally he was going to come to the library and talk to a very small group of, of VPL staff, um, but offered to open it up to anyone who could uh, make it on a day's notice. Um, luckily, we were available. We actually had to reschedule the recording of this podcast to, um, to accommodate <laughs> it. But um, so we were able to sit in a room with what, probably like 30 or 40 other librarians? Yeah, and other yeah. Staff. And, uh, and learn from and interact with one of the most sort of interesting minds of our time on topics like privacy and information access and educating digital, people about information access. Yeah. Yeah, so um, we're still marinating a little bit from that talk, and I think we want to condense it down into some points and, and think about it a little bit more. But do stay tuned to the next uh, week or two, and uh, we'll definitely do a whole episode where we talk about what we've learned and where we want to take the podcast in the future, because I think we want to make it a little more... Um, yeah, we want to tackle some of those issues a bit more yeah. and some of that you know innovation that's happening in various sectors around how to share and educate uh, people about digital access and digital literacy. Yeah, totally. So uh, is there anything else for you there, Sam? Uh, well, I suppose the last thing, as always, uh, is to thank Jonathan Colton for the use of our theme song, Glasses, off the album Artificial Heart. And uh, we just got an email about the lineup for Joko Cruise Crazy in January. And obviously, Jonathan Colton's going to be there. But it looks like uh, Rhea Butcher and Cameron Esposito, who are both <gasps> comics who uh, spent a lot of time broadcasting on the Maximum Fun Network, are going to be yeah. there. Yeah, uh, awesome. Paul and Storm, as usual. And then they do this thing where they have featured guests that aren't necessarily like, putting on a show but they're sort mm-hmm. of on the boat hanging out they become yeah. part of other people's shows they hold Chilling. they hold office hours apparently um, oh, cool. and this year so far that's going to be Steve Jackson and David Reese who I don't know too much about and then mm-hmm. John Roderick of whom I am a huge fan right. and uh, Will Wheaton pretty cool. awesome yeah so, is uh, Hank so yeah going this year is who Hank Green oh um he has not been announced yet Okay. But well, if still he time. is, then I expect an autograph, damn it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that'll be super fun. And I'm sure we'll do like at least one sort of postmortem on the cruise uh, with, yeah. with Melanie and I when we get back from that. For sure. From that nerd paradise. <laughs> well, I guess then that's it for uh, us this week, guys. Sorry about the little break there, but uh, we will endeavor to be a little bit more uh, active in the future. Um, and I guess just enjoy the fall foliage. Mm-hmm. It's getting pretty. All right. Uh, And uh, as always, we'll catch you on the proverbial flip side. Bye.